Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Have you ever been in a conversation that got ramped up? Uh, you know, Jesus in conversations, when you watch his, his interactions with people, when they start to get ramped up, he tends to redirect the conversation by asking questions and telling stories. And I think it's for just this simple reason. Stories and questions help us get at our own heart. They're kind of like the ability for Jesus to come winsomely through the side door of our heart instead of coming straight through the front and stuff that we might not be able to hear if he said it directly, but because of questions and stories, we're able to hear it. So we're going to look at a story today of Jesus that is on the topic of forgiveness. And I think when we talk about forgiveness, our first reaction to it is positive because we think, well, I really love it when people give me forgiveness. But then there's also this kind of struggle we have forgiveness, especially when we're the ones who need to give it to someone else. And I think the reality about forgiveness is that if we just pause for a moment, every single one of us can probably think of someone in our life who we either need to forgive or we struggle to continue to walk in forgiveness for. And the reasons are really valid. We've been hurt. We've been hurt. They're justifiable. Over the past couple of years, uh, my son, who is a uh, Marvel comics and movie fan, has been educating me on Marvel. So we just went to the Spider-Man movie this last week. It was a great movie. But every time you go into one of these movies, I find I sit there cheering for justice. We see the villains, and we cheer for revenge. Now, regardless of whether you're a Marvel fan or a James Bond fan or some other type of movie that you go to, we want the villains to pay for their sins. We want payback. And we don't want that payback to be quick. I mean, honestly. Have you ever had a a good triumphal fight scene in a movie where the man walks in, bang, walks out, it's all over. Done. It's just like that. No. The hero or the villain in every movie we like, the great triumphal fight scenes, they beat each other up, the hero and the villain, beyond what is humanly possible to survive. And then the evil one eventually just slowly, painfully dies as they come face to face with the conquering hero and the power of good. There is wired within us this desire for justice, for making those who have caused so much pain in this world pay. It's deeply rooted in the depths of our heart. So I was reading this last week about a couple from the 1800s in Argentina. That's what everybody always reads about every week, right? The husband, a successful businessman, uh, earned, accumulated a, a million dollars of net worth, which in today's dollars would be $25 million, a fair sum. And the problem was, though, his wife spent them into debt, spent everything. So to solve this problem, the man filed a discharge of responsibility lawsuit, effectively separating himself from his wife financially, leaving all the debt on her and her alone to pay. That's a really nice guy. I mean, that's just the great way to build your loving, wonderful marriage relationship, isn't it? They lived uh, the next 15 years essentially not talking to one another. When they did talk, it was vicious and nasty until the husband died. And on his tomb, the husband had arranged for a bust to be made of him uh, sitting on a sofa looking off into the sunset and into the horizon, stacked on top of where his 
tomb was. His wife lived another 15 years, and when she died, she had also arranged for an artist to make a bust of her, putting it on her tomb with her back to her husband. This couple's tomb is a featured tourist attraction in this city that the tour buses take them to, and everybody laughs and cringes at the sad irony of a marriage gone so wrong. Jesus shares today a story today for us that teaches us that freedom from the pain of injustice is found in something different than our natural heart's desire for payback and justice. And forgiveness is something that challenges, I think, every single one of us at a deep level in our hearts. So let's, let's jump into the text. We're going to start in the interaction of the text where it leads into this story. It says, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, if you're asking Jesus that question, you probably have somebody in mind that you need to forgive. We don't know who exactly it was. Maybe it was John who always referred to himself as Jesus' favorite. Maybe it was James who was competing with Peter for the great, being the, in the place of greatest honor. Maybe it was somebody else in Peter's life. We don't know, but somebody had gotten under Peter's skin. Peter goes on, should I forgive them as many as seven times, he asks Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, if you read some translations of the Bible, they'll say 77, but most of them say 70 times seven. If you've heard a message on this passage in the past, then there's a lot of discussion as to what Jesus means by these numbers, and that's all fine and good, but I love how N.T. Wright, one of the greatest theologians of our day, simplifies it. He says, Peter, in asking Jesus to forgive seven times, is very likely thinking he's very outrageously generous in saying that, offering to forgive so many times. And Jesus says, no, forgive seven times 70 or 490 times. And it's kind of the shocking way of putting Peter and his pride in himself in his place, in a sense. Yet even for some of you who are thinking, well, only 490 times, that's all I have to forgive. I mean, my husband blew past that on the honeymoon, so I should be able to get rid of him, right? What Wright so profoundly points out is that Jesus in his hyperbolic use of 70 times 7 is simply saying to Peter and to us, if you're still counting how many times you've forgiven someone, you're really not really forgiving them at all, but simply postponing revenge. And then Jesus tells Peter and us the story of forgiveness, which is our focus for today. In Matthew 18, it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all they had in payment to be made. Okay, so if you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember a Roman talent in today's dollars is around $2.4 million of gold. So 10,000 talents is $24 billion. In 2019, this year, if you have $24 billion, you're going to be the 32nd richest person on the planet. That's a chunk of change. Now, let's add to that, remember who Jesus' audience is. Jesus' audience is the masses, the common folk largely. So for Jesus' audience, a denarius a day was a good wage. Now, there are 6,000 denarii in one talent. So what that means is the listeners would have been thinking, if they could do the math, I have to work 200,000 years 
to pay this debt off. See, Jesus is communicating to his audience, this debt is utterly impossible to pay back. So the servant fell on his knee. The story goes on, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Sure, he's going to really pay that back. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, and here's the word, forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. So the guy who had just been forgiven 200,000 years of work goes and finds a guy who's owing 100 days of work. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all this debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And all of us say, Well, yes, certainly, of course, absolutely, that ungrateful, unmerciful cuss. In anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In other words, he was put away for life with absolutely no hope of ever getting out. So also my heavenly father, Jesus concludes, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I mean, those are strong, terrifying words. Aren't you glad I came to church today? What Jesus is saying that is so shocking and disconcerting this may cause us to think, well, so is Jesus saying my salvation is dependent on me forgiving other people? Is he saying that my salvation was by faith? This is what I always thought it was. It's a gift of grace. But he's kind of saying here that I won't be forgiven unless I forgive others. And by the way, those people don't deserve forgiveness, so why should I forgive them? So let's just slow down. Let's walk through this parable and see what Jesus is saying. The first point Jesus is making is really a simple one. It is being hurt by others in life is an inescapable reality. Has anyone here been offended, cheated on, lied to, betrayed, wrongly accused, abused, sinned against? Of course, we all have. In this story, Jesus is dealing with the simple fact that we will all be hurt, offended, wounded in life. I know some of us try to live life impenetrable, believing and acting like that doesn't affect us, but, but, but that's just a farce. It's simply not reality. It's a little bit like a, a story that's told about Muhammad Ali on a plane. He sat down in first class, and the flight attendant came to him and said, uh, put on your seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant eyed him back and said, Superman don't need no plane either, so put your seatbelt on. Can't we just admit we're not Superman? Wounds, hurts, offenses don't just roll off us like water off a duck's back. Maybe your parents were abusive, demeaning. Maybe your spouse hurt you terribly. Maybe your child or friend rejected you saying you were just old-fashioned, irrelevant, unwise, out of touch, judgmental, and there's a rift that seems unrepairable in your relationship. Or your boss and your colleagues used you and betrayed you. See, as we get older, if we don't deal with the wounds and offenses well, they just sit inside, corked in us like a bottle that's building pressure with bitterness and distrust. 
What do we do with these kinds of offenses? Well, in today's culture, offenses are the fuel for justice and social justice movements, the motivation of politics, the center of all that divides us. And frankly, we don't see a lot of healing going on in our nation right now. Instead, we see bitterness uh, turning into raging infernos in our culture today. And to that, Jesus comes along and says, forgive. We may not like that simple statement for any number of reasons. Maybe you've had friends who've come over for a cup of coffee and they just say, you just need to forgive and just get over it. But Jesus is not saying to us, just get over it. Jesus is not saying the offense is not a big deal. Jesus is not saying to us, you just need thicker skin. What we see in this story is that the servant owes more than he could ever repay. It is a big, hairy deal. And the story leads out with the figure in the story who represents God, the king, forgiving the unforgivable. See, God forgives the unforgivable. See, in the story, Jesus makes sure everyone in his audience knows this guy's debt is so huge, it is a debt that he could never repay. And here's the deal, though. When we read this, we tend to not relate to that $24 billion guy. Instead, we relate to the 100 denarius, the $11,000 guy. And we think, yeah, that $24 billion guy is such a sinner, so much more of a sinner than I am. And that's how we think about other people oftentimes. That's how we live life. If you are married, can I just ask you, how many of your arguments over something hurtful devolve into you are more wrong, no, you are more wrong type of arguments? See, we tend to live life arguing that the other person has sinned more than us. And that is how we read this story. But what if Jesus is actually saying to us, every single one of us is the $24 billion sinner? We've all sinned far more than we can ever hope to repay. We tend to not believe that in life. But that's... Let's just for a moment, let's, let's do a fun calculation of our sin because that's everybody's idea of fun, right? So think about it. In just an hour, how many times do you sin or fall short of God's glory and his ways? I mean, worry is falling short of faith. Impatience is falling short of kindness. Speaking ill and joking with cruelness about other people or, or gossip about another falls short of love. Looking at someone lustfully falls short of faithfulness. Greed falls short of generosity, and we could probably keep going for a while with this list, couldn't we? And on top of that, if you sin against your coworker and others uh, overhear you, and then you go home and tell that story of how you ripped into your coworker around the dinner table, your sin against one person is compounded to dozens of sins against all the people who are collateral damage from experiencing or seeing you do that sin or hearing that. But let's just keep it simple. Let's just say we all fall short and we all sin 10 times an hour. There's 16 hours in a day. Multiply that by 365 days a year. Multiply that by the average lifespan of 78 years. And that means every single one of us has sinned over 4.5 million sins per person in our lifetime, not including collateral damage. That's impossible to make right. That is, 
swimming in an Atlantic ocean of debt that you can never hope to repay, you're going to simply drown in it. See, that's the opening point of Jesus' story. The servant, you and I, cannot pay. So instead of throwing each of us hopelessly into debtor's prison, into hell, God chooses to forgive us as a pure gift. We are rescued from our mess and restored to life. Third, Jesus' story highlights a reality we too easily slip into. The forgiven forget and refuse to forgive. This is really the heart of Jesus' story. We so quickly forget what God has done in our lives. Do we want to know why we mistreat people in life? Do do we want to know why we have impatience with other people's sin and want revenge and justice? It's because we forget how extravagantly we have been forgiven. See, the word remember is actually used in the Bible over 250 times. When Jesus institutes what we celebrate today as communion, Jesus' words are, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we celebrate communion regularly? Because we so easily forget. See, our most natural tendency in life is for each of us to minimize the debt we owe God or owe others because of our sin and to maximize the debt of others so that we can feel good about ourselves. But when we minimize sin, our own sin, we belittle the grace of God. That's why we see in in Jesus' story the $24 billion sinner being forgiven. Then he goes right out and turns around to an $11,000 sinner and is unmercifully demanding repayment. He could have forgiven. He should have forgiven. The forgiven should forgive, but we, we don't. See, when we, the forgiven, don't forgive, we not only have not taken responsibility for our own sin, our own debt to God and others, But in light of that, we have not even really received God's forgiveness either. See, the $24 billion sinner leaves the master's chamber acting like a college kid who is about to be kicked out of school for failing all of his classes, who gets grace to stay in, and then he acts like he never got less than a B+. He walks out of the dean's room with a smirk on his face thinking, I dodged a bullet, I talked myself out of a jam, I pull a fast one, I'm pretty good. He doesn't act like one who has been truly forgiven and really knows it. I mean, really knows it. See, Jesus says something in Luke 747 that uh, that relates to this, that frankly, when I was younger, it just used to tick me off when I read this passage. He says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And I used to think, God, that's unfair because I've lived a pretty clean moral life compared to many people. And you're saying because I didn't sin more that I can only love little? I can't love much? But that's because I was a self-righteous $24 billion sinner who didn't realize that's what I was. I hadn't owned that my debt was unpayable. When we don't forgive, we are grace rejectors. And we don't know the gratitude of being forgiven. Now, naturally, when the king in the story hears that the $24 billion sinner did what he did, he blows his top and he, 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 he thinks he's utterly, just says, you utterly despicable, wicked, evil servant, I forgave you $24 billion. You can't forgive 11000 What's up with that? 
And then we read that man was delivered to the torturers for an eternity in prison. And then Jesus' statement, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Our fourth point, which is actually Jesus' main point of this whole story, is the forgiven forgive. Those given grace, give grace. Those who have been undeservingly loved, give love that is undeserved to others. Romans 2.4 says it this way. It says the, the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. It's what leads us to change. It's what leads us to freedom from the chains of our sin and our temptations. One who is forgiven forgives. You and I forgiving is actually evidence of us receiving the grace of God. On the other hand, those who have been forgiven but who do not forgive can expect many bad days in life as we choose to live with the torturers of bitterness in our lives. Ah, but you might say, the hurt is so deep. They betrayed me. They took my innocence. They took my youth. They took my retirement dreams. The hurt is so deep. And you know what? Yes, the hurt is so deep. It's Atlantic Ocean deep, impossibly deep, unpayably deep. But why hold on to the bitterness? Why let them keep taking the peace and joy of life from you? Haven't they already taken enough? And like you, in your own Atlantic Ocean of impossible sin, doesn't God want to free them from their sin as well? And wouldn't you who have been rescued from the shipwreck of the impossible also want to rescue others from the shipwrecks of their life that have left them also impossibly drowning? Ah, but what, what was done to me was so horrible, and if I forgive, then I approve of their sin, don't I? Yeah, it was horrible. But forgiveness doesn't mean approval. God forgiving you wasn't God approving of your sin. He was simply offering you a way to be rescued and restored and a path to life. And neither does your forgiveness put a stamp of approval on someone else's sin. It just offers them rescue, a way out, an opportunity for life. See, forgiveness doesn't minimize or diminish justice. It just entrusts that justice to God. Which leads us to the fifth truth that Jesus is telling us in this story, that forgiveness always costs something. This is the very reason Jesus went to the cross. Justice demands a price be paid, otherwise there is no justice. And since God is just, Jesus couldn't just say, I forgive you. The price of sin needed to be paid by someone. And, and that's not a foreign concept to us. We relate to that concept. We understand that. We see that concept in our own world, in our own life. We see the price of sin, of slavery, being paid still today by black people who are enslaved in the United States. We see the price of colonial expansion being paid by American Indians still to this day. And if you've been divorced by someone who greatly sinned against you and you were the more innocent one in that equation, you have paid a great price. And if there were children, they have paid a great price. If you've been wronged at work, cheated out of a deal, out of commissions, out of a promotion, you and your family have paid a great price for that wrong. When wronged, 
Revenge and payback is what we most naturally feel is right and just. Now, many of us will never act on that revenge and that payback, but we still emotionally demand it. How? We daydream about payback, don't we? We get caught up in that cycle of emotions. We dream about cleaning the toilet with the toothbrush of the one we want to take revenge on and secretly, quietly putting it back in its place, waiting for that brush full of toilet germs to be used by them with our hidden camera watching them. That's what we dream of. And then we have these, get caught up in these internal promises driven by those painful emotions that we say we are never, ever going to allow ourselves to be hurt like that again. And we pay the price. We pay the price in our blood pressure being higher. We pay the price in being angry and that anger coming out on people around us who are innocent instead of the person we want payback on. We promise we will never be hurt again so we don't trust people, so we keep people at a safe distance and we miss out on love as a result. See, the truth is there is a much higher cost to withholding forgiveness. Withholding forgiveness compounds the offense in our lives and in other people's lives as well. It fans the flames of bitterness and division, keeping those divisions alive longer, resulting in more and more and more offense. You see, I sometimes wonder in our world today with our politics of race, with our politics of socioeconomic class warfare, with our victim politics that are played so often, whether we aren't actually fanning the flames of bitterness and division rather than actually healing them and making things right. See, Jesus' teaching an example on forgiveness is that forgiveness starts with the innocent being willing to absorb the cost, just like Jesus did and give undeserved forgiveness to others that makes possible a free and clear path back to reconciliation. Stanford University did a study called the Stanford Forgiveness Project. It found that though the act of forgiveness may not come naturally to us, research has shown that learning to forgive lessens the amount of hurt and anger and stress and depression people experience. People who learn to forgive also become more hopeful, optimistic, and compassionate. Forgiveness also has physical benefits. People who learn to forgive report significantly fewer symptoms of stress, such as backache, muscle tension, dizziness, headaches, and upset stomachs. In addition, people report improvement in appetite, sleep patterns, energy, and general well-being. Jesus knows, our Creator knows, how much we need to live in forgiveness, which makes us aware that if we're actually struggling spiritually, emotionally, relationally, that unforgiveness may very well be playing a role in that struggle for us. So let's begin to wrap this up by looking at three tips that can kind of help us walk forgiveness out. The first is this. Forgiveness is not amnesia. Forgiveness does not mean you forget. Now, I know many of us have heard messages in the church, and we've all heard people say, well, you just forgive and you forget. And for some, when you hear that, that ticks you off and rightfully so. How in the world can I ever forget what happened to me? Here's the problem with that statement, forgive and forget. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. 
The closest statement to forgive and forget is found in Isaiah 43, 25, which reads this. God is speaking. He says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake. I love that, for my own sake. What that is saying is God loves us so much that his love compels him to erase our sins and find a way to do that. And then here it is. And he says, I will not remember your sins. Well, Ross, doesn't that sound like forgive and forget? Well, but choosing to not remember is not the same as forgetting. I mean, it's not like God fell one day and hit his head on the coffee table and he can't remember anymore. If that were the case, then he wouldn't have been able to inspire the writing of most of Scripture because a lot of Scripture is full of people who were sinful and he wouldn't have remembered the stories. And at best, it means we got a God who's suffering from amnesia. At worst, it means a God who's suffering from dementia. And that doesn't give us any confidence in God if he forgets. And frankly, it belittles how greatly he loves us. See, what not remembering means, especially in the context of blotting out our sins, is that God will not hold them against us. He will not keep a legal ledger of them anymore. He will not rehearse them. He will not bring them out of the file drawer and bring them up again. It's forgiven. It's in the past. He knows our sin happened, but his love is so great that he's able to know that happened and not remember it, not put it back together again as a case against us and hold it over us somehow. So when Jesus says, forgive as I have forgiven you, it means you don't forget You know the cost. You know the pain of the consequences. But you love enough to choose to forgive and not hold it against them. Which leads us to the second tip in walking out forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean you have to trust someone. Forgiveness doesn't require that we live naively expecting the other person to all of a sudden be safe. It doesn't require us to go from zero to 100 miles an hour in 10 seconds in that relationship. You can still have healthy boundaries. If you've been sinned against by someone who's abusive, forgiving them doesn't mean you naively let those boundaries go and continue to be abused. You offer forgiveness and you offer the possibility maybe even of healthy relationship as an opportunity, but if they choose not to operate within those healthy boundaries, then it's perfectly safe and perfectly right for you to have those boundaries to have some distance there. There was a man in my past who to my face was generally nice and affirming and then he would often go behind my back and work to undermine me and all the people he was trying to undermine me with would come and tell me what he was doing. It was a huge, huge struggle for me. Thankfully, I had some really good friends who consistently uh, brought me back to forgiveness because all I wanted was to have vengeance and justice. I wanted my bitterness to be expressed. But even though I chose to forgive, I had to continually choose to forgive almost every time I saw him. Just because I forgave him again and again didn't mean he stopped his sinful behavior. The bitterness would come up and I would have to consistently stop and pray, God, I know my heart wants bitterness and revenge right now and I don't have the strength to not feel this right now, so help me let it go. Help me live in forgiveness in this moment. Help me to choose to act in love even though my feelings want me to do something else right now. And sometimes that healthy love looked like keeping him out of something I was involved in. Other times it looked like working with him. And other times it looked like addressing the issue directly with him. Forgiveness does not mean I trust you. 
What forgiveness means is I'm not holding your debt of sin against you. I'm choosing to give you the same grace that God gave me. I'm choosing to not live in bitterness. Forgiveness means when I talk, to, talk with others, I'm not going to throw you under the bus and spin things and spread things in a way that make you look bad and exacts a price from you. Forgiveness means I choose a soft and gracious heart rather than a hard, bitter heart, which leads us to the really big question for all of us today. Are you growing softer or harder as you age and grow older? Are you growing softer, kinder, more gracious, or are you growing harder, more cynical, more unwelcoming, more distancing, and keeping people at a safe distance in your relationships? See, we all see it. We see the people. We see the couples who become sweeter and more affirming with age, and we also see those who become harder, more opinionated, and bitter with age. Jesus is inviting us to live through forgiveness and become softer, kinder, sweeter, gracious people with age. And consider Jesus. He stayed soft all the way through the cross. After all the persecution, the rejection by his family, by his disciples, by the religious leaders conniving against him, Jesus was still so soft that in the midst of the pain, as he had nails in his hands and feet and his back had been flogged bare down to the bones and the muscle being exposed, Jesus looks at those who had done him wrong and he compassionately and powerfully says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them because they are acting desperately as, because they're drowning in their sin. They, they are the $24 billion sinners trying to make themselves feel better by accusing the innocent. You see, forgiveness is such a costly, soft, kind, loving, strong, gracious act. The third and final tip for today is forgiveness won't come overnight. But you can consistently take steps in that direction. You can forgive and then take steps that over time bring your feelings and your desires and your thoughts in line with the gift that you've given. See, I think some of us expect forgiveness to, to be like the squeeze bottles of ketchup today. We just gently squeeze them and uh, we tip it up and it all comes out really easily and nice and neat and evenly and it's all good. But once in a while we run into circumstances where squeezable forgiveness works in a really quick and easy way. But in most circumstance, of the circumstances that we face, forgiveness works itself out more like the olden days of ketchup bottles. Anybody remember those? You're going to, okay, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to tell you an olden days story. Back in my day, years before the squeeze bottles were invented, ketchup came in glass bottles. And it could be the most frustrating thing. You tip the bottle over and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And then sometimes you would grab a knife, sometimes, most of the time a clean knife, but sometimes you're desperate enough it didn't have to be clean. You'd stick that knife in there and you'd start trying to fish the ketchup out like you were in a slasher movie, right? Just trying to get it to come out. And so Heinz realized this problem, so they tried to spin it, which we do in marketing and politics with commercials featuring, remember, the anticipation, it's making you wait. Commercial, you remember that jingle from commercials? But no jingle is going to solve the problem. It's not going away. Sometimes you want to forgive, and you know you should forgive, 
But you open the cap, you tip the bottle, and nothing happens. It's so hard. It's so slow. Now, if you're old enough to remember these bottles, you eventually got smart, right? How did you get the ketchup to come out? You learned that by tapping the bottle just gently with one finger, help the ketchup come out slowly and evenly, faster than if you didn't do that. That's actually a better picture of forgiveness. You decide to forgive. You take the cap off the bottle. You gently tap it, asking the Holy Spirit to come and give you the grace to forgive. Asking God to help your feelings and your thoughts come into alignment with the forgiveness that you've been given. And as you continually gently tap that forgiveness, it gradually and smoothly and sweetly comes. In the meantime, you just continue to tap and you pray, God, I trust your way of forgiveness is best, so I choose to forgive. Help me walk it out. Help me ruminate just a little bit less about payback today. Help me lead the way in forgiveness and reconciliation. See, I believe God wants to use us, his church, in significant ways to reach and change our world. I believe that Jesus is the hope of the world and we are chosen to bring his message of forgiveness to others and heal all the junk that's going on. But I also believe that if we as followers hold grudges and don't walk out and live forgiveness out, that we will not be nearly as effective in his mission, that we will limit the power of God in our lives and in our community around us. So N.T. Wright summarizes this whole parable in such a profound way. He says, forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, withholding forgiveness, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life they desperately need, you won't be able to take in any more forgiveness in yourself and you will suffocate very quickly. Forgiveness is equivalent of the air we breathe in and we breathe out. So as we wrap up today, would you stand with me? And I want to end, our, end, our, end the message portion of our service in a little bit of a different way. There's a prayer on the screen that I want to invite all of us to just pray together. God, I'm willing to take the cap off and give forgiveness. I'm willing to live in the discomfort of forgiving while I still am struggling with the bitter, ongoing pain from the past, even the ongoing pain of the person continuing to sin against me now. Lord, come and empower me by your Holy Spirit to see how greatly you have forgiven me, rescuing me from the drowning in my sin, and work through me as I forgive to rescue others. Thank you, God, for the freedom you are bringing to each and every one of us through knowing we are forgiven and forgiving others. Now would you just join in worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O Quest. Thanks for listening.